podcast with James and Jane. Hey, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you all about the great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out our online seminar program, the workshops we run, as well as our coaching and all the other podcasts we've recorded. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now on to this episode. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of a World of Work podcast. We're still on our series about inclusion and diversity. Pretty exciting. Um, and today we're speaking with Dr. Raymond Abdul-Rahman from uh, Manitoba in Canada. It's a, it's a really exciting conversation, I think. Yes, it is, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, yes. <laughs> not least the fact that I believe he is in the middle of a fairly serious storm. Yes, he did. So he, we'll see how this goes. Yeah, yeah, his little boy's home from school, and, and partway through our recording, he actually loses power and bravely battles on and records using his laptop's battery and his phone to connect to the internet. I know, bless him. It'll be seamless. You won't even notice it. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I'm properly excited about this conversation because there's multiple things I love about his work experience and his uh, the, the subjects he talks about. Yeah. So, so what is what is the focus? What, what's the main focus? So uh, he is principally interested in... Uh, exclusion and the way that societies have things like micro inequities so the idea that there are these little acts that we um, consistently experience in our life if we are from a minority group that they all build up to be the sum of something far more and we explore uh, we're going to explore some of the experiences that he's had that people that he works with have and what we can do as a society to try and improve the situation it's really interesting, isn't it? Before we get into it, should we check in? Okay, shall we? How are you? Uh, listen to me. Listen, can you hear oh, me? Oh, diddums, poor me. Um, well, no, I mean, you know, clearly you are bunged up. Yeah, and I I'm have sympathy, up. but you have brought it into my house, which yes. I'm happy oh, about. Yes, I know, I know. I do feel bad about it. But do you? Yeah, I do. I do okay, feel bad about right. it. You're forgiven. Um, but it is what it is. So, so that's mainly what's been keeping me busy. What about you? Uh, yeah, I'm busy. I'm really busy at the moment. Um... Mostly with a very furry puppy that's not a puppy anymore, that's no. quite demanding this week. Uh, but also really busy with my second year. I'm into my second year of my master's. Oh, she's saying hello. Hello. Um, I'm in the second year of my master's. I've uh, got a couple of new coaching clients. So quite a lot on. Loving it though. Right. Well, let's jump into the conversation. Okay, so here we go. We're jumping into the content now um, and carrying on with our series on inclusion and diversity. What we're going to do today is have a little bit more of a deep dive around some of the areas of inclusion and diversity that um, listeners might not know as much about. And we're really lucky to do that today in a conversation with uh, Raman abdul Raman, who's joining us from Canada, from um, uh, Manitoba. Where, where are you? In Manitoba, Canada, correct. In the middle Manitoba, of the good. Yeah. So why don't we start by having you introduce yourself a little bit to the guests, if you could. Yeah, so my name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, clinical and consulting psychologist. Uh, so basically, I do work in working with individuals uh, clinically, but have over time moved into coaching and consultation and professional development on issues of diversity and inclusion. Um, I moved into that space kind okay. of kicking and screaming. Um, it, it's been, uh, I think I've, I've always had the interest, and I've got the research in the background, but I always used to be I always used to kind of be a little bit frustrated that it would be, you know, the token brown guy is the one who did the work. You know, the, the more I went into that, the more I understood the importance of lived experience in addition to training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I rely, I, I rely on both um, when I do this work. Yeah, okay. So so when, when we're talking about inclusion and diversity, one of the things that we focus on a lot or one of the strands that's focused on a lot is ethnicity. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think the current state is from an inclusion perspective when we think about ethnicity? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're from a religious minority as well. How does that That's right. sort of appear in day-to-day life? Yeah, you know, so it's interesting because I have a, like an intersectionality. Um, you know, I'm a Canadian. I'm a longtime Canadian, moved to Canada when I was uh, mm-hmm. seven years old. So I was an immigrant uh, at some point in time. Um, I'm an ethnic minority, a cultural minority, and a religious minority as well, too. So I have all that intersectionality there. Um, I think, you know, I, I think in some ways we've made some progress in the world when it comes to discrimination based on ethnicity. I don't, yeah. I don't, I certainly don't think we've come far enough. I think people are more aware of it. Uh, but I think where we fall short is we don't understand the experiences of people. I think we fall short when it comes to cultural diversity. 
I often say that we live in a multi-ethnic society, but we don't live in a multicultural society. Okay. Um, so we have diversity present, uh, but we're not really drawing on the experiences of that diversity. Uh, we still encourage, you know, there's still a, a sense of colonialism where people are forced to kind of move towards uh, a Eurocentric uh, way of doing things or a Western, so to speak, way of doing things. Yeah. So, so in, in your opinion, then, does it feel like we're, we're trying to homogenize the cultural identity of people in, in our countries? Is that where you're headed? Yes, absolutely. And, and you can take one good example of this is take a look at the names of individuals, you know. So what we're finding is basically a, a gradual kind of wiping out of this, of both culture and language. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the number of people who come, whose, whose families come from different parts of the world, uh, maybe British, maybe Canadian, maybe American, um, but their names uh, reflect a Eurocentric background, right? Um, um and, and if you speak to many families, they'll say, you know, well, we would like, we would have liked to have given our children these names of great value. Uh, however, we didn't want to make it difficult for them. Yeah. Do you see that sort of correlation between names and success in society and things like that? Well, actually, the research shows that, is that employers uh, are 40% more likely to hire individuals with, uh, quote unquote, white or European sounding names. Yeah. Um, so it does have a huge impact. I, I mean, even even people with cultural names will often simplify it. I mean, you asked me for my name and I said, Raymond. Mm-hmm. Um, and frank truth is, you know, it's uh, my full name was Abdurrahman. Yeah. My great grandfather living in a in a british colonized country decided to shorten it because he thought it was too old-fashioned sure. to raymond and that's how it was growing up and so the, even when you do have a name that is of a cultural or an ethnic origin that reflects a different language um in many ways you're almost forced to and so i keep myself keep trying to you know bring back like in, when i write my name it's usually my first initial and my last name sure. um, but there's a great deal of pressure yeah, it's really interesting. So my my, par- my partner's South African, and I, we were over there a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was the first time I'd mm-hmm. had a conversation with kind of an understanding about this concept around names. And we were chatting to a couple of the guys who live in the area where where we were on a holiday on um, on one of their national parks, and Saskia sort of turned around to me and said, "Well, that's not that that won't be his name. Right? That if he's from this area with this tribe, that won't be his name." Um, so I'm going to try and, you know, I'll have a chat with him. And he's very quickly explained to me that it was just too complicated yeah. for the people that he lived alongside in other parts of the community because the, literally the noises and the sounds that are made in sure. uh, the Zulu language are completely different from the European language. So they just, and he felt, you know, that he wasn't able to use his own name. So he, you know, just picked another one. And I just, I thought, I, I, I'd never really thought about just how difficult and challenging from an identity perspective that must be. Yeah. And so you can imagine, you know, like, like, so I'm a psychologist. And so for me, a lot of the issues when it comes to work and issues of diversity and inclusion is really about the, you know, the, the emotional and psychological well-being of an individual that leads to success. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine when people face these barriers where they have to kind of, you know, almost hide a piece of themselves yeah. uh, when they're at work. Uh, the impact that that would have on that, um, you know, and, and the interesting thing is it's not that these names are so unpronounceable. It's just that we're not familiar and don't make that effort. So, you know, we live uh, in a world where we can pronounce Dostoevsky. Yes. Uh, but, you know, we, yeah, we won't make the efforts. You know, we make those efforts of, of pronouncing those complicated Eastern European names, uh, but we don't make an effort when it comes to pronouncing the names of other cultural names. Now, one example of that, for example, is uh, take, for example, the East Asian culture. It's now kind of taken as a norm that you'll have your Chinese name mm-hmm. and then you'll have your English. Name. Absolutely. Um, and, it, you know, to a point where where we have an entire culture now saying, well, you've got to have these two names because people are not making the effort. It's not that the name, you know, they might internalize that that uh, discrimination to say, well, our names are too difficult. And they're not. Um, it's just we're not familiar with them. But they're just getting to the point where it's like, we should give you a name that will make it easier for you in life. Well, and it's just, I mean, it's it, it feels incredibly lazy, like on behalf of like... Well, it's entitled. As, uh, well, it's both entitled yeah. and lazy to suggest that someone's name, which is such a core part of your identity, is not worth the effort or the time to uh, 
to spend the time learning how to say it. Particularly, like you say, when we seem to, particularly in Britain, for example, yeah, um, we and we've worked really hard to do that in some cultures and with some languages. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was uh, actually went in for a, a meeting with a, a client uh, at a professional firm just uh, yesterday, and the secretary asked for my name, and I said, uh, "My name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman," and uh, her eyes bulged out, and she, you know, yeah. and she kind of looked down. She's like. Could you um could you just write that name down here on paper and you know yeah and uh, sometimes it's it's not I think the process of all this is not that we can't make errors um, it's more the process by which we acknowledge that we might not have that information and that we're in the process of learning and when it comes to work and when it comes to leadership this is the challenge often is that leaders or people who are proficient in certain areas. It, it's difficult psychologically for us to admit that we're still on a path of learning, that, you know, we spent a very long time becoming very good at what we do. Uh, and now to admit fault can be a very, you know, um, ego defeating kind of task. Yeah. So, so do you think in, in this sort of instance, some people are sort of fearful or uncomfortable of getting it wrong and making faux pas and things? Yes, absolutely. And that, that's a big part of it as well, too, is, uh, you know, in as much as racism, discrimination and privilege and bias still exists in our society, um, we also live in a society where there's a, a great stigma in coming across as racist and, and, and as there should be. Mm -hmm. But what it, can, what it can do is mm -hmm. it can have people who absolutely are not racist, just ill-informed or don't have that information. And frankly, the world is so big that none of us are going to have all of that information um, that they will often refuse to uh, or hold back any questions out of a fear of coming across as racist or ignorant. The sad part of that is what it does is that silence just makes it look like that individual is more entitled and less willing to learn. So people will make errors. Yeah, People will put their foot in their mouth. But rather than moving forward and saying, you know what, I apologize, I'm still in the process of gaining that information, could you help educate me? Yeah. They'll stay quiet out of a fear of coming across as ignorant. Yeah, yeah, or compounding the situation or something yeah, like that. It's really, it, it's so fascinating. I was, I was reading an essay by a lady who uh, who's, has a young child who has mm -hmm. a severe visible physical disability. Yeah. And uh, she was talking about her experiences of other mothers in the playground because it's her second child and her first child did not have a visible physical disability. And uh, she said she, she was talking about the reactions of other mums. And you can see as soon as you dig into it, it's just they are absolutely fearful that either they or their child is in some way going to do something that is going to offend. So they just remove themselves. But that signal is we don't want to be anywhere near you yeah. um, rather than we're prepared to take the risk and ask questions. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think in, in working on resolutions, it's about being able to understand what we know and what we don't know and being comfortable with what we don't know. Um, yeah. And I, and most of the time we get so anxious, we avoid, but avoidance is the worst thing you can do to overcome any anxiety. So, so in your experience, if somebody doesn't maybe know how to pronounce somebody's name, what's for, what's for sort of most appropriate way to, to deal with that situation? I think it's simply to say, you know what, uh, I apologize. I, I'm not familiar on how to pronounce that name and I'm, but could you help me uh, pronounce that? Yeah. Most people are very accommodating as long as they feel like assumptions aren't being made about who they are. Yeah. Um, and silence just compounds the perception that judgment is being made. Yeah. You mentioned, um, yeah. about uh, your work and helping people who uh, are dealing with some of the emotional consequences of things like this. Um, and I just wondered, yeah. when people experience this kind of, uh, well, si I think you, your word was silence, where you go, you know, they are not included in that way. What, how does that, how does that show up in people? Like, what's the, what's the impact? The impact is, um, is actually quite profound. Um, and it starts really at an early age. So I talk about this idea of ethnic or cultural identity development. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're born in a Western society and are a person from a marginalized community, you are born into conflict. So you face, like your identity is not represented. You are not, you know, your, your culture is not necessarily valued. And so you're always at odds with the rest of society. And that is related in media, it's related in workplaces, it's related in schools. And so you're always at conflict. Now, the example I give is, oh, I give the example of my own son, you know, uh, who's uh, like, his name is Yusuf, mm -hmm. but people say y Yusaf. Yeah. And he's like, 
he said he's six and he goes i wish you changed my name to yousaf and i'm like why should we change your name to yousaf he's like it's see easier for other people to pronounce um you know so he's at a conflict where he's almost uh, forcing himself to go along with what's expected of him. Um, when he was almost three, he said to me he didn't want to be Muslim anymore. And at three, you wouldn't know what that is. But I asked him, oh, what is that? You know, why is that? And he said, well, Paw Patrol, a cartoon he watches, only celebrates Christmas. Yeah. And so that identity is at, at constant odds. So the impact is quite significant. The problem is, is that it's quite subversive. You know, um, people who experience that kind of marginalization, um, start to internalize that okay and so the racism is internalized uh and when it's not even when there's an understanding of the impact of all of it there's a great deal of pressure to not say anything and so you know i usually give the example like you know if uh, women are in a in a group and a man says something misogynistic you know it might be subtle you know they'll look at each other and they'll make eye contact and then there'll be like a nod right it'll be subtle enough that some people wouldn't notice it but if you're from a community or a group has experienced that marginalization, you'll pick up on those subtleties really quick. Yeah. And you won't need anything. You'll know what that is. The same thing is true for people who are ethnic, cultural, or religious minorities, where you'll pick up on it. The problem is, is that there's a sense of power and privilege in a workplace or in any organization or society as a whole where people are not allowed to be able to express that. And there's an ideology of this angry brown man, angry black woman, you know, um, that when you say something, you're often told you're too sensitive, people didn't mean it that way. Mm-hmm. And so your victimization is actually further kind of um, passed aside. Um, and that just kind of minimizes your value of your experience, especially when it comes to trauma. So there are people who won't see it. You know, there's a sense of, you know, the, the slang term of being woke. You know, there are people who don't see it and they live with that internalized racism on a regular basis. And those that are more open to it and see it um, often can't speak against it. The psychology of the way all of this impacts people is to consider what human experience feels like. And so human experience, the way we typically tend to look at it is we consider just the emotional experience uh, of, of what we go through. You know, so if we have a cupcake, it tastes amazing and there's an experience tied to that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we experience racism it just produces a feeling what we don't tend to realize is that 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 emotional experience is tied to two other critical pieces that influence that experience as well too um it is the it's the cognitive piece the way that we think and number two the way the way that we behave what we also don't recognize is that the, the choices that we make and as a result the thoughts that we experience and the experiences that we have are also determined by the context and the setting yeah so if we live in a world that is um, that generally marginalizes people, where uh, microaggressions exist in a societal way, in an institutional way, in an organizational way, that will limit the choices of people. And when they limit their choices, it, it actually influences their thinking. Right. And ultimately then has an impact on their emotional experience. Now, now this doesn't just go for minority groups. It actually goes for the majority groups as well, too. And the research shows is that when we are not inclusive as, as a setting, what it does is it artificially inflates a sense of self-worth in the majority population. Right. And that's ultimately where a lot of ignorance and racism comes from. Uh, when people are not exposed to that diversity, they tend to see themselves as better mm-hmm. uh, just because it's more. And is the inverse of that true as well? Yes, it is. Absolutely. When we have a change in settings, when the environment changes, when things are more inclusive, yep. It opens up people's thinking and the worldview, um, and racism decreases. And we see that in the research when it comes to leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, as it stands now, generally people, when they think leadership, they think white. Yeah. Um, and they tie more positive qualities to leadership or leaders who are white uh, than people who are people of color or cultural or ethnic or religious minorities. Uh, the research also shows is that when we have greater exposure um, to leaders who come from minority groups, our views about leadership being just white or views about leaders who are not white changes to be more realistic and in line with the way that people have typically seen leadership uh, as a white standard. Yeah. I mean, there's some great stuff in there. I'd, I'd like to unpick a few of the things that you talked about because I think some of that's content that would be really helpful for our listeners. I think as we got to the end, we talked about sort of role modeling and representation and things like that. But I'd like to start with some a phrase that you used earlier on. You used the phrase um, microaggressions. 
Um, and so some people will know what microaggressions are. Some people will have heard the phrase uh, micro, micro iniquities. Would you be able to explain what both of those are and maybe give some examples? Yeah, my, my favorite one and probably my biggest bugaboo, the one I get on a soapbox about yep. is the question, but where, but where are you really from? I actually, I did a TED talk yeah. uh, on that entire topic. Um, the idea here is that microaggressions are these small, subtle ways of relaying um, a worldview that marginalizes people. Um, so if you read between the lines, it, you know, and they're not always intentional ways of harming other people, but it does represent the worldview of somebody else. So I'll give you a really fun example. Okay. Um, uh, so, you know, the question, where are you from? Uh, in certain settings is understandable. You know, if you are, uh, you know, traveling and people are, tra- are elsewhere, or you're in a place where most people are traveling. Mm-hmm. But this question tends to come a lot uh, to people who are not white, um, suggesting that they're not local. Yeah. Uh, and that somehow... And that's that that relays this impression that um, somehow they don't belong, they don't have the same rights, and it marginalizes those people. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was an undergrad, my friend and I used to travel a lot in road trips, and uh, he used to vo- uh, work at camps in the United States. And we were in the deep south of the of the United States, and we were at a camp where everybody was from somewhere else. And my friend had quickly learned in working in the States to just, uh, you know, if people said, where are you from? He wouldn't say the exact city. He would just simply point up and say Canada. Right. So we were there and this woman with a really lovely uh, Southern charm and accent said to him, and, oh, where are you from? And he said, pointed up and said, um, you know, Canada. And she looked at me and she said, oh, oh. and where are you from? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I said, I- I'm with Tim, uh, also from Winnipeg. Uh-huh. And uh, she said, oh, I just knew it had to be someplace different. Yeah. So a certain well-meaning, a very well-meaning, meant to be welcoming, you know. Uh, but if you read between the lines, the idea here is that because I wasn't white like my friend Tim, yeah. uh, that I needed to be from somewhere else. And what that does is it reduces my rights, yeah. you know, my sense of status, my sense of agency in that setting. Um, and that's the message that it relates yeah. So, so the implicit underlying nature of that question in itself brings connotations that, that to some extent force you to defend yourself or force you to, to feel um, marginalized and ostracized in, in what's otherwise a well-intended well, setting. Well, and it's, but it's, oh, yeah. it's such, sorry, I just, I'm, when you phrase it so clearly and so, uh, in such a simple example, and it's something we see in Britain all the time that is a question that so yeah i mean it's just i'm thinking now and i've I've been with people uh friends and and actually relatives of mine that don't look like me and Mm -hmm. therefore do not meet some people's expectations of what they would expect of a londoner and of all cities you know and i just it makes me recognize this this ability to take away uh someone's well if if someone hasn't got a very strong sense of their own identity it really makes the chance that you take away their right to feel and own a piece of London and be a Londoner and own that label. Um, and that just, it shows me. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. And, and I would say it's even problematic when you do have a strong sense of identity and you keep getting, you keep getting that sense of identity removed from you. And, and when we, and we look at, when we look at who is asked that question, it speaks to a complacency about a belief that we hold about who is a Londoner, who yeah. is a Westerner, you know, who belongs wherever you might be. And that is a very frightening thing. Yeah. Um, and if we, if we look around the world, and and you know, even if we look in the media, and I, I encourage um, you know uh, listeners just at this at this moment, just simply go on Google and type in "beautiful people." Yeah. And you're going to see that the majority of people that come up are going to be white. And the way Google Images works is basically it picks the most popular image and it shows. And that's why Google Images, like what image shows up first, varies because the popularity of images change. And it speaks to a standard that we have in the world that is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And that's a very scary and frightening thing. And what that suggests and it what shows in the media is that this concept of a microaggression is not just personal. There, there can be those personal microaggressions that happen from individual to individual. But microaggressions are also institutional and organizational. If we take a look at who is represented in media, who is represented in in in, um, in print, uh, but even on staff, you know, you hire a person of color, 
and you and they're the only person of color even if you take a look at leadership and you take a look at the majority of leadership in the organization is white yeah. or doesn't come from a very cultural uh, or religious or other sense of diversity what does that relate yeah that's powerful and and on that you know that google search point i think um I think it, it's not just searching for beautiful people. Is it? There's so many different things you could search for that would draw out the same sort of implicit societal biases Absolutely. that we have. You know, back to your point around what is a what Absolutely. is a image of a leader. You know, things like that. Um, so, yes. if, if microaggressions are, are these sort of smaller acts that that do feel you know sort of emotionally aggressive or um, aggressive to identity and things like that, what what is a micro iniquity? I would say it's it's the same thing where where you're noticing that one person would be getting uh, more of a privilege than the other person, and it, to me, it's the same thing as a microaggression. Um, mm-hmm. If you think about who gets asked that question, where are you from? You know, um, think about uh, having to change your name or adjust your name in order for somebody to in order for you to fit in. That's an inequity that only exists for a certain person or a certain group of people. Um, so yeah. micro inequities are the same sense as microaggressions in the same way uh, that force people into 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 senses of inequity. So so the act itself is kind of a microaggression, but the fact that some people uh, receive these and some people don't draws out the inequity side of things. Absolutely, but but the impact, like I mean, you know, when you say a ton of feathers, is still a ton of feathers, and so most Absolutely, people you yeah. say, well, don't be sensitive; it's just a small thing. But you have to understand when you come from a marginalized group. These inequities happen on a consistent and a regular basis to the mm-hmm. point that when you face them, you just choose not to pay attention. You have to choose the battle to fight. Um, yeah. I myself, you know, I have the privilege of education. I have the privilege of, of being male. Both are not things that I would like to have a privilege for, mm-hmm. but but they exist to society anyhow. And yet I could tell you I experience discrimination or microaggressions at least on a weekly basis. Yeah. Um and that's, that's a difficult thing, despite my education, despite the privilege that I might have, mm-hmm. to have that inequity can be quite striking. Of course, yeah. And and your point about the ton of um, ton of feathers still being a ton. I mean, minor things add up significantly. Well, don't I they? was just I was thinking about the metaphor about a thousand cuts, and I just yes. I don't. Um, if anything, I think for the people. Uh, so I I I'd sometimes work with uh, manufacturing and retail industries. And uh, the people who are living what might be perceived as society's ordinary everyday lives, those are exactly where those microaggressions and microinequities are going to show up uh, regularly. And um, and if it, if you experience anything, I mean, you're the psychologist. I feel like I'm saying it more for our listeners. If you experience anything on a regular basis, uh, the reinforcement of that message is is just it's pervasive. Yes. Right, so we, we talked a lot there about microaggressions and microiniquities, which I think is really interesting. One of the things that came up when you were speaking about that was the phrase privilege, which is something that we hear a little bit, but I think a lot of people don't really know what privilege is. Could you, could you sort of delve into that for us? Yeah, privilege is a really loaded word that creates a very strong emotional reaction in a lot of people. Uh, it's a very anxiety-provoking word. A lot of people don't like to use it. Even in my presentations, people take great exception, even when they are people who are very proactive, who are very active in terms of diversity and inclusion, to say that somebody has privilege can really kind of throw them off balance because it, it almost feels like you're intentionally saying that they're trying to be racist. But yeah. privilege is not about a personal struggle, you know, and that's a key piece. People, people take these things very personally, and it's not always that. Privilege is about a broad sociopolitical political system. It's about a set of norms based on historical experiences uh, that basically distribute power, privilege, and benefits unequally amongst people. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that can, you know, people can root a lot of that to a sense of colonialism, when, especially when it comes to ethnic, religious, or cultural inequities, uh, but also issues with patriarchy and women. You know, there, there are privileges there. And that's why I said earlier, you know, I carry a privilege of being male, uh, you know, which, you know, I, it's not that I something that I want, but I know for sure yeah. there are times that, I'm out with a woman or with a group or with a, you know, that people would speak to me before they would speak to the woman. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if I'm in a position where somebody's in a position of leadership above me and there's a woman and someone's talking to me, uh, assuming that I'm the person in charge, that speaks to a privilege I have. Yeah. And when it, when, when that, when that's the case, I have to understand that this privilege isn't something that I necessarily can control, but it is societal. And, it, you know, it's based on a, 
almost um, a group think of expectations of how people like how the world sees most people might see a certain situation now if we're not mindful of that privilege that's where we end up in trouble um the privilege that we hold can unintentionally perpetuate inequity Mm -hmm. and institutionalized discrimination you know uh, so when we're not mindful let's say for example we were never mindful about asbestos in buildings yeah and think about the damage it did right we're like oh no it's not a big deal we can leave it in there and then we realized it had a real, it was a real health problem. And then, you know, every office building in the Western world was getting their asbestos torn yeah. out of it uh, to make sure that it worked place. But we needed to be mindful of it, right? There was not that, that asbestos wasn't put in intentionally necessarily. You know, people weren't trying to harm people. They just thought it was okay. We live in a world where we need to start to be aware of the impact of that privilege and discrimination, and sometimes that it can sit in our that that power can sit in our lap, even though we don't want to. Yeah. Now, when we do that, when we're mindful of it, we can now shift the dynamics a little bit. So, if a if a person were to start to talk to me when a woman in leadership is present, I would say, actually, she you know she's the person organizing this. This is her thing. You should need to speak to her. And what it does is it starts to shift the thinking of the other person. And and now gradually, little by little, we shift the way society thinks. And therefore, privilege doesn't, you know, privilege becomes more kind of even evened out. And that takes a while for that to occur. But we need to start to be, we need to take ownership of that privilege and we need to start to acknowledge it. It's just really interesting. I, I've seen some lovely uh, small moments in sport. So I work predominantly in sport. And I've seen some lovely small moments in sport of male athletes correcting journalists and media mm. about so there's, a, there's one about Andy Murray who was sort of said, oh, you would be the first man to. Oh, and he went, the first, British the first person, person yeah. to do this. And he went, yeah. first man. Yeah. Yes. Because, you know, Serena Williams did it like yeah. 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a, there's a lovely use of both his privilege as a man, but also his other profile to just remind everyone that there is a there is a different way to view things. Yeah, absolutely. And so here's here's what happens. We take that emotion that's full of guilt, right, and frustration. When we when we understand where that's coming from, we can transform that guilt into an action, and we become an ally. Mm-hmm. And when we're in leadership or at work, that that allyship as a leader allows us to create a sense of equity at work. When we when we work on acknowledging our privilege. When we create that equity, uh, when we work on a more inclusive workplace setting, the economic output of that is significantly high. Um, we know that countries that uh, are more equitable or where the communication between different groups is better, um, we know the economic output of that country is better. We know that in organizations, uh, when teams are more inclusive, their productivity includes 10 times compared to those that are not inclusive. Um, you know, there was some research, research, recent research done, and they found that uh, with some of the large businesses in the United States, had they worked on being more inclusive with the LGBT community, they would have had an addition of like $23 billion. Um, so, and that's wow. just with one group. You can imagine what happens when we start to be more inclusive as a larger group. Um, generally, I mean, if you think about behavioral economics, you want everybody to feel like they belong. The moment you start to marginalize people, you know, people are not going to feel included and they're not going to they're not going to be spending as much. Take for example the celebration of holidays. If you look at a, a workplace setting, uh, schools, organizations, society, what holidays do we tend to celebrate in the western world? Even when those western countries are really a conglomeration of very diverse and multicultural and multi-religious uh, people, those that diversity is never celebrated and if you think about you know we know the economy gets better around christmas time when people are spending more what would happen if we were all celebrating different holidays on a more regular basis what if everybody was buying you know uh, their jewish friend a rosh hashanah gift or their muslim friend uh, a ramadan or an eid gift what would that do with spending what would that do with jobs the business case for this is really strong. It shouldn't have to be because there's an ethics to all of this, but the business yeah. case for this is incredibly powerful. 
Right. So it's, it feels like there really is a clear business case for this. And I, and I like what you're speaking there uh, a little bit about the moral imperative as well. Like you said, we, you know, there's an ethical argument to it. Yeah, and... I, I was smiling while James is smiling at me because we've, we've recorded a couple of episodes in this series already. And um, there have been th- three, uh, three of our guests at this stage who have all used a phrase similar to either moral imperative or the ethics or the social cause. And I feel like that's new to the debate in the last few years. And it's quite exciting. Yes, yes. Yeah, often people are often asking, what's the business case? Well, frankly, the business case is easy. You know, you make more people feel included, the more likely they are to work, the more likely they are to have opportunity, the more likely they are to spend, the more likely are that is to kind of generally help, you know, all of us. You know, uh, we go further together. That's simply the case. But can we live in a world that's not equitable? Can we live in a world that favors yeah. one group over another? And, and maybe that speaks to a sense of complacency. A lot of us think that we've come out of the civil rights movement uh, when we did, having achieved all that we do. We think that we you know, are safe because we can all drink from the same water fountain. And the truth is that's not the case. Um, if you look at it, you know, we talk about the gender pay gap. There's actually a very significant pay gap between different ethnic minorities yep. as well, too, uh, you know, with white people earning the most. Um, and even when you look at, you know, people say, and I, I don't think this is a fair argument, but people will say, well, let's look at immigrants. And I'd say, you know, there's people, diverse people have been in Western society for a very long period of time. So we don't need to look at that. But even when you compare third generation, uh, you know, people who've been here for three generations in a Western world compared to, you know, uh, uh, an average white person, they're still making at least 15 percent less than that. It's incredible, isn't it? That's mind boggling incredible mm-hmm. and, yeah. and so what would motivate if we think about money as a motivating factor what would motivate that person to work harder when we know that they're always going to be behind eight yeah. yeah well and there's there's some lovely i know it's pretty simplistic um theory but there's some lovely theory around equity theory and and the, mo- the mo- theories of motivation isn't there around you know everything's so much of what's going on in our head is comparative anyway so if we're already starting 15 percent behind someone you know, what does that yes. do to your morale and your motivation? What does that, that awareness do constantly to be valued at a lesser level? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so um, I was just going to say, if we've talked there about some, some things around the way things are at the minute and the prevalence of microaggressions and the fact that privilege does exist. And, and I, I liked the stuff that you said about privilege, about the importance of being mindful about privilege and then acting on it as the person with privilege. I think that's good. And we've talked a little bit about a, the case for change. At an organizational level, what do you think some of the things that organizations can do are that would help, you know, break this down and help um, break down um, some of the barriers that exist at a societal level as well? Yeah, I think there's many things they can do. And I think the first thing that we need to do is not put this, you know, not make this a specialty niche topic, not make this, you know, something on the back burner. I think this needs to be a priority for every single organization and every single business because there's going to be diversity in your organization, whether you recognize it or not. So number one. Um, and I think that starts with developing a sense of a policy of what that looks like and, and what are the goals that you're going to try to attain. Now, in order to be able to do that, you also need to be able to leave room for change. Now, that doesn't mean you allow discrimination to exist, but you need to be able to create a setting where people can talk about these difficulties, both people who feel marginalized, who can bring up the issues when they feel like they are marginal, marginalized and are taken seriously, but also creating an opportunity for those people who may not be aware, who may not have the knowledge, who may inadvertently and not intentionally come across, um, you know, as disrespectful, you know, with those microaggressions, to have an opportunity to learn. Yeah. So it decreases the anxiety on the minority side, let's say, uh, or of the marginalized side, where people don't feel like they can't bring this up anymore. Because I can assure you, you know, any single person who's from a marginalized group right now listening to this will say, yep. I face that, I could never speak up against mm-hmm. it. So we need to remove that barrier. Number two, anybody who's ever put their foot in their mouth has never wanted to talk about what they need to do to improve. And so know that the cognitive piece never changes. There's no opportunity for learning. Yeah. So the policy needs to be able to address that and to be able to now put that into action to say, how are we going to talk about it? What that means, though, is that almost at every single meeting on a regular basis, organizations need to be asking themselves, what are we doing to be able to resolve this problem. What is, what are, you know, how far we've gotten, what are we doing, how far have we come in our goals? So we need to have benchmarks to be able to achieve that as well too. 
the other thing that needs to happen is to seek training in this. Now, there's a lot of training available. Uh, people can do this diversity and inclusion training, but it has to go twofold in order for it to work. A lot of people will now pull somebody in, do this training and say, we've done it. It's great. We've got it. But change, human change doesn't exist when we just offer a single incident or opportunity for that to exist, unless the mm -hmm. change that, that happens is traumatic or dramatic. So um, I like to think, you know, about flashbulb memories. Yeah. Um, so 9-11, you know, everybody can think about where they were when that happened, you know, or the London bombings. I knew where I was when that happened. You know, we've got these flashbulb moments. Now, those are traumatic or dramatic that might create that change. And they have created that change, unfortunately, negatively towards certain groups of people. When we are trying to make change for the better, you can't rely on a single like training event to be able to create that change. I think it's a good start, but unless yeah. that training is both tra you know, dramatic and traumatic, you're not going to be able to create that change. So the second piece of it is that that organization needs some sense of accountability. And so I, I tend to recommend coaching on a regular basis uh, for yeah. their leaders because change happens easier when it goes top down than bottom up because grassroots changes are harder. You have to overcome a lot more barriers. But when you're in a position of leadership, you can elicit change that goes from the bottom down that works faster. Now, in addition to that, I don't think organizations just need to consult externally. So you can hire somebody to be a coach. You can hire somebody to, be, to do professional development. But you also need to be able to consult internally. You've not, you need to give voice and agency to the people in your organization because they will understand the nuances yeah. of that organization more than any external individual. And they can speak to those experiences that they've had to say, this is how I feel in this organization. Yeah, that's powerful. This is what I feel I need. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give one more piece here. We have to remember. So I'll give you an example, like a personal example. It's, it's not a business one, but you know, my son was in um, Montessori school in a very diverse class. And I, and they, they only celebrated Christmas at a very high level. And I said to the director, you know, you got a really diverse group of students here. It'd be well worth your while to start to acknowledge and mm -hmm. celebrate, you know, the holidays of their communities, these other Canadian holidays at the same level you do Christmas. And, you know, and they were quite defensive and they said, well, you know, um, if it's important to them, they will ask. And that is a big misnomer. You have to remember that when you come from a marginalized population, you don't often have the privilege or the sense of entitlement or sometimes even the awareness if you've internalized that racism to be able to ask for what you need. And that's why you need to be able to go one step above what people are asking for and just make diversity and inclusion yeah. the norm. You know, we, one of the things that you were saying there about um, starting with leadership that really resonates with me or, or you know, giving um, leadership an opportunity to change and, and helping people uh, share their lived experiences as well. Something we did in an organization I was in is we, um, we introduced something that we called tell me anything sessions. And what we did is we'd get senior, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard similar things. We, we'd get a senior leader and then we'd get people significantly more junior from a specific diversity strand or from a set of experiences. Um, and they'd just have an hour to speak to that person. And that had huge impacts on some of the leaders that we worked with. And it really created um, allies, which was powerful. But again, it needs that space. I mean, I don't think people would always choose to speak up like that on their own. If you create an environment that invites them to, then it's effective. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just, I'm thinking about, so we, we've talked quite a lot about change generally, but I think there's one of the things that I think is really organizations, certainly that I've worked with, that quite often they go through periods of transition and change, which is an almost a perfect opportunity to potentially open up some other conversations, think about doing things differently. And yet it's usually at those exact vulnerable times where maybe people feel, uh, disproportionately at risk of redundancy or disproportionately at risk of maybe suffering through the transition that mm. they don't speak up. And I, I, the number mm -hmm. of conversations I've sat and said, well, the, you know, these are confident professionals. They'll tell me if something's wrong. And it's, it's, it's just yeah. such a horrific assumption because they won't because they're in some level, they may give up something. I, I think we make this mistake that when people are professionals, that they're bulletproof yeah. and we forget the humanity in all of this. Mm. 
you know, both in people who are marginalized and both who people might be in leaders who might be unintentionally, you know, maintaining a sense of inequity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's that's why it's very critical to have a sense of coaching available in large organizations or smaller organizations, because there are times where individuals may not feel comfortable to speak up against inequities yeah. or to admit inequities. And in those kinds of places, you need somebody to guide you through that process. That's why it's critical for businesses to have coaches who work in this area to guide them through this. Because what it does is it takes a human experience and then it applies it at a larger scale so that in some ways that organization becomes more human. You know, I think sometimes we, when, when we have organizations, it's almost like we lose our humanity in them. Okay, cool. So we've talked about a lot of really good stuff here. I like the, the reflections on the importance of coaching and helping people through this journey of development as, as they can uh, strive towards improving their own sort of inclusion and recognition of, of, of this side of stuff. Um, one of the phrases that we hear from time to time is cultural competence. What are, you, what are your views yeah. on cultural competence? Is that something people can develop? Or? Oh, absolutely. I, I, think, I think most people don't realize this, but they have been developing their multicultural or cross-cultural competence without even on a regular basis. Anytime we engage with people who are dissimilar to us and we actually engage with them versus just a passing engagement, we understand a little bit more about that person's worldview. So the definition I like to use is actually based on uh, experts in this area, Sue and Sue. And they say it's ultimately the acquisition of awareness, knowledge, and skills needed to function effectively in both a pluralistic and democratic society. And ultimately, what that means is that we need to be able to communicate, interact, but also negotiate and intervene on behalf of people who may not come from the same background as we are. And so if you think about, you know, if, uh, um, if you've never met somebody who is gay, if you've never yeah. met anybody who's Jewish, uh, never met anybody who's Muslim, you know, your ideas about that individual might be very limited. But the moment you engage yeah. with them, your competence about their cultural background, and and I and I think there is a cultural difference even in between, uh, you know, uh, the LGBT community uh, and you know and the rest uh, and those who are not from that community, uh, from men and women. I think those are subtle nuances that people don't understand, but also yeah. culture as we know it as well too. So I think it is something that we can do. I think is something that we do do. The dilemma is that we tend to approach it from this perspective of you know, this exoticism, you know, that we, even when we're well-meaning, we kind of press our faces and hands up against the glass, you know, in an anthropological sure. kind of way, trying, yeah. ooh, like, tell me about your culture, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This food is so tasty, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what happens is when we do that, unfortunately, is it, makes us feel like we are fish outside a goldfish bowl looking in when we ourselves are also fish we have to remember that we all swim in the same bowl and in order for us to develop a sense of cross-cultural competence we don't first need to be aware of the other individual we first need to be aware of ourselves of our own cultural sense of self our own biases and our assumptions and that's where it's important to now be aware of these unconscious biases Mm-hmm. And then when we're aware of ourselves, then we understand the awareness of the other individual. And then based on those two, we have a culturally sensitive working alliance. Yeah. So it has to go in that, in that process. And when it does, it works well. Yeah. And, and you know what, what, what you're talking about there is really interesting. The, the need to start with your own, uh, your own cultural awareness is, is really powerful. And, and if I'd call out a theme throughout a lot of the things we've talked about today, it, it goes back to being aware of yourself and aware of your privilege if you have it, aware of your behaviors to others. And, and so much of what we talk about seems to go back to that core of self-development and self-awareness. Well, the sense of mindfulness, right? Um, yeah. You know, any, anything related, you know, as a psychologist, I can tell you, anything related to change never happens with complacency. You know, when we assume we've done everything we can do, whether it's education or, you know, personal development or anything, uh, when we're complacent, we fall behind. And we do this a lot. We're very complacent when it comes to issues of inclusion and diversity. When we're mindful about it, and it doesn't mean we need to be hypervigilant, but we do need to be mindful about it. And when we're mindful about it, that's when we make positive changes. Um, you mentioned that you were talking about our unconscious biases and 
Um, we've we've touched on unconscious bias in, in other episodes we've done, but could you ref- tell us a little bit about your thoughts about unconscious bias training and what it brings to organizations? Yeah, I think again it has to be followed up with more regular, like a, you know, some sort of follow up. It can't just be a one time thing. But bias, bias is ultimately just about the information that we have in our head. It can have a very negatively associated term. People feel like it places them in the hot seat and they're uncomfortable. Ultimately, it's just about a lack of information. If I don't have an inf- a set of information, my bias is going to go towards what I already know. And so when we increase that information, when we provide a more nuanced sense of information about different things, about different people, then we reduce our bias. So, so we all carry it in some way or the other. And a lot of times people will talk about, you know, people often feel like this is a uh, a white person versus a person of color thing. And this is not that. We, we all carry it. I, I speak about my own bias on a regular basis. I, I remember um, I was coming back from, uh, from Tanzania. I do some work there. And mm-hmm. uh, our family had stopped in Dubai. Now, uh, my family's originally from Tanzania. Um, that is my culture. I'm very well grounded to it. Um, but when we were in Dubai, we were at the Dubai Mall. And that's, you know, people who are sh- actually shopping there, not just touristing there, are people who are generally quite affluent. And yeah. so in Tanzania, um, where I had just come from, you know, uh, there's this trend of, uh, of taking this local fabric called katenge and, turn- and, and sewing it into these really vibrant and really uh, creative dresses. Um, so when we're in Dubai Mall, and I, I just came from there. When I was in Dubai Mall, there's a woman in the elevator who's wearing a dress that to me resembled the Katenge. Yeah. And I said to her, and she's like, that's a, that's a beautiful dress. Uh, did you, it's a, it's a, did you have that made like, you know, uh, did you have that made in Tanzania or, you know, is that a Tanzanian Katenge? And she looks at me and she goes, this is Dolce and Gabbana. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I was like, this is, this is my culture. These were my people. But, yeah, I made yeah, an, yeah, yeah. but I made an assumption about her social status, about her affluence, because those dresses are not usually made by people who are wealthy, right? Um, I, but simply based on her skin color. Now, yeah. that's a very powerful thing. Now, that's a thing. If it's admitting that is embarrassing, you know, it's difficult, but it's also human. Yeah, and when I do that, I it might be risky, might be wrong, but it but it perhaps might be relatable. And it understands that me, even as a person of color, even coming from that culture can make those errors. We have these biases. But it, when we open it up, when we talk about it, it demonstrates a willingness to learn. It demonstrates an insight yeah. that we might have. When we don't do that, the alternative is it appears to make us stuck, entitled, yeah. unwilling to learn, and maybe even dishonest with having very little insight. So we have to remember that to err is human, Right. It's, it is not just white people making these errors. We all make these errors all of the time. It's not about the errors. It's about how we deal with the errors. And yeah. it goes back to that policy that we create in an organization to say, look, we are moving through this process of becoming more competent, more culturally competent, more inclusive. And in this process, we must learn from our errors instead of being accusatory with our errors. But we must also allow people who have been aired against to be able to talk about this so we learn from it. Yeah. It's a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, everybody is, to some extent, vulnerable in this and yet, effort to change. And yet the unifying part of all of it is that we are all human, all yeah. fallible, every single one of us. That's the very nature of our language. We talk about being human as being fallible. Yeah. And Absolutely. if we can get comfortable with that, then and we're well intentioned you know that's 90 that's got to that's got to be a lot of it yeah absolutely if um we've talked about a fair amount of things there if you were gonna have maybe one piece of advice for um you know a smallish organization on what they could do to start the journey towards improved inclusion particularly for maybe um ethnic or religious minorities what would you suggest they do um you know maybe i can give you two suggestions um one because i'm biased initiative but but number one talk to your employees <laughs> you know talk to talk to them and say to them we need to understand and not just talk to them once talk to them consistently 
and say, we're in a process of becoming inclusive. We want to learn. We want to talk to you. You talk to somebody once, they might not open that door. They may not even be aware of what their rights might be if they have internalized that racism. But if you open that door and you consistently open that door, eventually somebody will walk through it. And so if, if we don't yeah. create an infrastructure, if we don't create a road, nothing will be driven on. So we need to be able to create that road and have faith in the idea that that road will be driven on if we build it. And I assure you, there's enough diversity in this world that that road will be driven on. So build that road. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I've liked, that one, there's an initiative that we've started. It's been a civic pride campaign that we've developed here in the city um, called Win Love. And uh, so winlove.ca, if people want to visit, W-I-N-N-L-O-V-E.ca. And a couple of those tips about yeah. civic pride uh, is looking at a city as an organization has been about working on becoming more inclusive as a city. And one of those tips is about celebrating everything. Many of us, you know, mm-hmm. and to look at including different religious and cultural holidays um, into, you know, an organizational holiday. You know, are we just going to have a Christmas party or are we also going to have a Diwali party? You know, uh, yeah. if we can start to do that, even when it's not asked for, you know, and we include people who might be from our team who might be open to leading that, we start to have a situation where where this is not just based on errors and learning, but also based on celebration, you know, on having some fun with it. And, and what better way to connect with other people through some sense of celebration? Yeah, but positivity is excellent there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Right, okay, so I think we're kind of getting to the, to the end. I mean, we've had a fantastic chat. Um, I mean, we're not even close to the end, are we? No. But unfortunately, <laughs> our time has run out. Yeah, end of our time. Um, is there anything that listeners could do to to find out more about what you do or to, to learn a little bit more about the space? Anything that you'd recommend that they look at, apart from winlove.ca, which we'll, yeah. we'll share? Uh, people can take a look at my website, uh, leadwithdiversity.com. Um, there's a TED Talk that they can link to from there if they want to hear a little bit more about that. There's a media tab where you can hear me talk on different media outlets. Um, and I'm attempting to write more uh, with as much time as I can get. And there's a blog that they can follow and read there as well, too. Um, and you can also follow me on LinkedIn. Um, well, that's excellent. I'm sure uh, people will be in touch. Um, I'd just like to finish up by saying thank you. It's been an excellent conversation. I've learned a huge amount and found it enjoyable as well as informative. Yeah. It's- thank you very much. And thank you for, uh, for bearing with the the problem with technology in the storm uh we would have borne through a, a lot more than that but, uh, it, it was a, a really a really fabulous conversation so thank you i think our listeners are going to get a huge amount out of it yeah and i did thank you so much <laughs> uh, very kind of you to say thank you okay so that was our conversation here you are back with us just um a little bit of time to reflect on that episode before we check out um jen have you got any key reflections that you'd like to bring up uh, favorite episode I've ever recorded, I think. Right. And that includes the slight trauma of the storm. Yeah. Um, which just added to it somewhat. Uh, I, yeah, loads of st- I've taken away loads of stuff personally from that conversation. Never mind what I've taken back for the podcast. But yeah. I think probably the overriding thing is that he he presents such a sense of I guess compassion is the word yeah. I'm looking for. You know, he recognises that there is there is injustice and that some of those injustices are perpetuated and committed by people. But he does not, his, his, his solution is never about punishment. It's about education. It's about bringing people back together. It's about thinking about, reflecting about how we as a society can set ourselves up to avoid these things yeah. and to improve people's knowledge and understanding of what um, they are. So I took that away. I took away the fact that I walked in thinking, hmm, not sure what I think about the phrase cultural competence. And I've walked away going, brilliant, love it. <laughs> I think it's a really good exp- explanation that helps people understand something. And uh, yeah, it took loads, loads and loads and loads of stuff. Okay. What about you? Yeah, similarly, I found it a very reflective episode. I got a huge amount from it as well as enjoying it. Um, I think a couple things stood out for, for me. Uh, like you, you know, compassion is a common theme that's in there. I think that. A lot of the content really does touch on and bring to life equality and inclusion, which I think is, is really important. Um, I think all the content fits to, you know, treating everybody equally as, as uh, valued individuals, regardless of whether they are, um, you know, in a marginalized part of society or if they're in the majority as well. I mean, I think the sort of compassion extended to the majority is important. Um, and I actually really liked our conversation about the power of names as well and the importance of of, you know, names and getting names right. I thought that was really, uh, really good. Jane? 
So I was wondering what the joke was there. Yeah. And now James always looks at me when he makes a joke as if to oh, say, well, hey, I'm making a joke. The best jokes are the ones that you explain. That's, that's at least my own lived <laughs> yeah, experience. absolutely. That I'm bringing to this. Anyway, I really, really enjoyed that. I thought it was excellent. All right, well, let us just check out and say that we will catch you in another week as we carry on with our um, next episodes of Inclusion and Diversity. Bye, everyone. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.